John 17. A lot of scholars say John 17 is, quote, the real Lord's Prayer because it's an entire chapter where, where Jesus is praying to the Father on behalf of, uh, of his disciples. And he says, my prayer is not for them alone, but for those who will come to believe because of the message, uh, because of their message, that all of them, Father, would become one, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me so that they are one as we are one. Uh, May they be one as we are one and may they be brought to complete unity so that the world will believe that you sent me and that you have loved them just as you have loved me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. I think you can tell a lot about a person by what they say on their deathbed. So I thought about uh, some uh, famous last words of people. Uh, There was the great promoter, P.T. Barnum, and his last words were, How were the receipts at the garden today? And then there, of course, was the great patriot, Nathan Hale, who said on the, uh, uh, at the moment of his execution, he said, my only regret is that I have but one life to lose for my country. And then there was Revolutionary War uh, compatriot and uh, Declaration of Independence father, Thomas Jefferson, who had a real sense of uh, history uh, even before he died. So on the day he died, he asked the people around him, is it the fourth yet? Is it July 4th? A real sense of his place in history. And then my personal favorite comes from Union General John Sedgwick. He's at the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse. And he's commenting on the rebel snipers, the Confederate snipers. And he said, they couldn't hit an elephant from that distance. Those were his last words. They did. And then, of course, we get to Jesus. And in the Gospel of John, I think Jesus' last words are so clear about who he is and what's important to him. From the cross, he says this. He says to Mary that now John will be her son. And then he says to John, behold, your mother, uh, Mary will now be your mother. But less than 24 hours before that, he's got his disciples in a room uh, for the... uh, For the Passover meal, the last evening he'll be with them. And he prays for them. And what's interesting is in this prayer, he lifts up uh, their oneness, that they would be one just as the Father and Jesus are one. And he says, and may they be brought to complete unity. When you think about what's important to Jesus, this is what's important. What we have called connection in this sermon series. For Jesus, it's very important that we have that intimate connection with the Father But also it is important that we have this intimate connection one with another. Now the word we've come to use around this church to describe the sort of connection we have with each other is we call it community. One of my favorite definitions of community comes from my colleague Scott Hare who said community is is where people gather and Jesus is their most honored guest. Uh, Dallas Willard, uh, slightly more philosophical, put it this way. He said, the aim of God in human history is the creation of an inclusive community of loving people with God as its most glorious inhabitant. It seems clear 
that what Jesus valued in his life was this connection that we have with the Father, but also the connection that we have with one another. And it shouldn't surprise us. Uh, Jesus was a Jew, and the background of the Jews was an intense emphasis on their relationships with each other, on being a community. Uh, It starts right away at creation when God creates. God says it's good, except God looks at Adam and sees that Adam is alone, and God says, this is not good. And then, of course, we see that the connection and community between Adam and Eve gets, gets broken. Uh, at the fall, we see that uh, Cain and Abel's relationship gets broken. And, and we see this significance of community by watching it break. And then there's a very strange uh, character in the Bible. His name is Enoch. I don't know if you've heard of Enoch, but he's known for this. He never died, as, as far as we know. The Bible says in Genesis about Enoch, he walked with God, and then he was not. It was like God beamed him up uh, and, and took him away. But what's interesting is not what the Bible says, though of course that's always interesting. It's what the commentators on the Bible in Jesus' day said. They guessed that Enoch must have not had much use to get along with other people, so God didn't have much use for him left on this planet. And so God just took him. That's so fascinating. I've always thought Enoch must have been the most wonderful person alive, and, and probably was. And so that's why God said, well, you just come be with me. But their take was this, that Enoch must not have spent a lot of time with other people. So what was the use of him hanging around if he wasn't going to be connected? And then, of course, when they end up in um, uh, slavery to the Assyrians, one of the interesting things that happens is they can no longer go and worship and be connected to God in the temple. And so what the Jews start are what we call synagogues today. And these intense gatherings of people that gather for prayer and they gather for worship and study, and they're intensely in community with God and each other. And that became developed uh, in Babylon. It was one of their ways of staying alive as the people of God while they were in captivity. And then Jesus picks up this theme himself when they did ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. This is how he started. He said, Our Father. Almost as if to say, if you think it's just about you and God, you've missed something very significant. It is about all of us with God, our relationship with God, our relationship with one another. And Paul picks up this theme. If you look at Paul's letters, in a number of his letters, he really pushes the theme of unity that Jesus talked about in this prayer. Uh, he tells two leaders in Philippi, the leaders of the church, two women, Yodius and Tyche, he said, you need to get along. You need to fix this. Uh, to Philemon, he talks about um, Onesimus and Philemon. He says, we have to fix this relationship, this, this slave and free relationship, and, and, and get it right. And other letters, you'll see Paul in Corinth uh, uh, trying to get people on the same page because unity was important because it was important in the heart of Jesus. And if you don't think it's important in the New Testament, pay attention to this. More than 50 times in the New Testament, you will find a one another phrase. In other words, be kind to one another, forgive one another, love one another. You'll find that all throughout the New Testament. This sort of unity was significant. So if you'll grant me that it was important to Jesus and therefore important to the Father, let me hazard a few guesses about why I think unity and community, us being connected well with each other, is so important biblically. The first one is this. And you'll probably recognize this just from our world today, but apparently it's always been this way. And that is loneliness seems to be the number one problem that people have. The sense of not being connected, 
uh, to anyone. In fact, in most surveys still in North America here in the 21st century, more than 80% of people will say that their main problem today is loneliness. They can even have several children and yet feel all alone. And we remember God's judgment about that. God says, that's not good. It's not good to be alone. And then we come to find out that actually community has uh, beneficial uh, aspects, both physically and emotionally, for us. Robert Putnam is a Harvard sociologist. You may have heard of his book uh, uh, almost two decades old now called Bowling Alone. And he, he talked about the decline in social capital in America, that we just don't do things as much together anymore. And what he said from his studies was this. If you want to live a year to a year and a half longer, at least, then the best thing you can do for yourself today is go and join and become and come connected with a group of people. That's the best thing you can do for your longevity is to be in relationship and intimacy with other people in a group. And this uh, study is actually backed up by a study that UC Berkeley did, which was a longitudinal study that was even longer than the Harvard study. And what they found in looking at a group of people that, uh, that were highly invested and being in groups, and then another group uh, that was not uh, invested at all and, and kind of all go in their own way, they found that not only did people live longer, but they lived healthier when they were in these sorts of uh, con- tight connections and community groups. So I love what John Ortberg, who's a pastor in the Bay Area, his comment on uh, summarizing the study went something like this. He said, so what I found out is, you are better off eating Twinkies with other people than eating broccoli alone. I mean, if you really want to do something for your health, it has to do with our relationship one with another. So loneliness is just not good for us. Um, A more recent study, in fact, just a few years old, comes from a guy, Scott, I think it's a ton, A-T-T-A-N. He studied suicide bombers in the Middle East. And what he found was an interesting correlation that suicide bombers are not that way because of a cause that suddenly they believe so strongly in a cause. It's not a matter of education level, either lack of education or great amount of education. He found the number one variable in suicide bombers was this, a sense of being disconnected, a sense that they didn't belong, that they didn't have those kinds of relationships would lead them to become uh, engaged in this sort of activity out of their kind of personal a disconnection and disenfranchisement. It's a life and death matter. So that's the first thing. I think God knows that loneliness is really our, name, our number one problem and God intends to do something about for us. Another reason is this, that God intends for us to all grow in our faith and mature as disciples. And the fact of the matter is that's just not a solo sport. It's not a spectator sport and it's not a solo sport. If we're going to grow as Christians in the image of Christ, we're going to need each other to do it. There are a lot of spiritual writers that will uh, compare being a disciple to climbing a mountain. And I think in terms, A, of its difficulty, and B, that mountain climbers know you can climb higher uh, and further when you are part of a team. There's something about being a part of a team that enables us to do things that we could never do all by ourselves. And so I, I know I've told some of you about my sabbatical, and it was great, and I went a lot of places. But the one thing that I did for three months, no matter what I, where I was, is I ate way too much. Wherever, you know, I'd like to say it was just Italy, but it wasn't. That sort of became my norm. So when I got back, it was obvious that I would need to do something about it. And so I began to change my patterns and change my diet. But I, the only way that that has uh, worked at all for me is that my wife decided to do the same thing. 
and support me in this. And so not only does she keep me honest, but she also encourages me as we've undertaken this together. You can just do things together that you can't do alone. And the most important thing you and I will ever do is become more like Jesus. And that's just not something we can do by ourselves. It's a matter of growth, and maybe it's even a matter of survival. I think I've shared with some of you about a cruise that we took our two younger children on years ago, one August. And so, you know, since there's a lot of downtime on the boat, uh, we took them to the bookstore and said, you know, pick out a book that you want to read while you're on the ship. And so um, the older of the two picked out a book on the USS Indianapolis. I don't know if you're familiar with the USS Indianapolis. Uh, Sunk during World War II and then surrounded by sharks. Now, why you'd want to read that book while you're in the middle of the ocean, I'm not sure. But he did. But the interesting thing that I learned was this. Uh, He told me that it was the ones that were out on a raft distant from the group that got picked off by the sharks. The people that were still in a group huddled together had a far greater chance of survival than the ones way out there on their own. And I think God knows that when it comes to our faith. Why do people fall away from their particular faith? And I'd say at the bottom of it is somehow they got disconnected. They got disconnected from the group. They were out there on their own and maybe another group picked them off or maybe they fell all by themselves. If we're going to grow and remain the people of God, we're simply going to need each other to do it. And then finally, and I think this is the reason Jesus wanted to get out this morning, and that is one of the great things about being a community and being in unity with each other is that's really how the rest of the world knows that God loves them. You know, it's so fascinating, but when you think about it, God doesn't like uh, rent an airplane and fly a banner in the sky over the stadium. That's just not God's method. Uh, God basically, on one or two occasions, there might be a road to Damascus, but basically the way we know and experience God's love is to watch God's love in communities and, and, watch, and watch as they love one another. And so Jesus said, so that the world will believe, you need to come to complete unity. That's how people know that God loves them when they see us love each other. But what's happened in the faith is because we uh, are, are so insistent upon our faith, we've actually used the what we believe or practice about our faith to separate ourselves from other people in the faith. And that's exactly what some of the Jewish sects did in Jesus' day. There's a New Testament scholar, James Dunn, who points this out. He said, what happened is, except for Jesus, a lot of the religious sects in Jerusalem in the first century wanted to show how they were purer than everybody else. And they wouldn't come near these people who were not practicing or not believing the right thing, and they would separate themselves as a matter of principle. And Jesus comes along, and what's he called? Friend of sinners. It's almost like, I'm not worried about your practice or your beliefs, first of all, or initially. What I'm worried about is that you know that you're loved. And Jesus begins to reach out. And the unity becomes the primary witness. But for a lot of the groups in Jesus' day, it was their disunity that they thought was their badge of honor and strength. And so as Miloslav Volf says, who's a theologian at Yale who lived through the ethnic cleansing in Bosnia uh, two decades ago, he said, what happens is the religious groups in Jesus' day took what God considered a sin and made it into a virtue. They, They took their willingness to say, we are better than you, we are other than you, which God would not have been real thrilled about, and they made it their badge of courage. 
And I think we see this on the religious front today, where people will stand for principle. And the important thing is, you maintain your principles. And so I took the stand because I have courage, and you don't. And it amazes me in religious groups that we don't realize that maybe the main principle that the Father was trying to hand down was, first of all, unity and love. What we have in common, then we can deal with the differences. I'm wondering if the best witness in our day is to try to, first of all, love each other, even though we don't always believe and practice, think, and do the same things, and then stay in dialogue about those things that we do not agree with one another on. Uh, But when we make our principles, other than unity, the main thing about us, then what we do for the world is we give them a picture of disunity, which when the world looks at that, they can't imagine a father who loves them as they are, where they are, and wants to draw them into relationship and community so that they may become as God intended them to be. One of my favorite stories I heard was from a guy who was a missionary in Ethiopia, and he was talking about a a situation in Ethiopia, and he said, what's interesting in Ethiopia is that when Christians uh, get arrested and thrown into jail, Everyone in the jail is excited, and they're very happy. And it's not because they don't like Christians, it's because of this. African jails, you're probably aware, are the way our jails used to be so many uh, years ago, and that is nobody feeds you and takes care of you. If you're going to eat, it's because your family brought you food or your friends brought you food, and if they ignore you, you're just going to rot in the jail. But one of the things about the Ethiopian Christians is it doesn't matter the reason that the brother or sister got thrown into jail. No matter what they had done wrong, they were not going to ignore them. And they would come with food for their brother or sister. And not only with food enough for the brother or sister, but for everyone else in that cell block as well. And so every time a Christian gets jailed, the prisoners rejoice. Because they see the kind of unity and they see the kind of love uh, that's going on. They know they'll eat, but also they get a picture, a picture of a God who loves them.